Sarah. Oh. Thank you. That'll be funny for people. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. afternoon, you two. I'm so glad that we're back to talk about all manner of things. But before we jump into the questions of the day, how are you guys doing? Mm, you know, it's kind of a rough news cycle right now. I'm yelling at my husband a lot for unnecessary reasons, but we're doing okay, you know? <laughs> oh, what, what on earth are you talking about? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Jumping in early. Two feet. Yeah. Sarah Condon. <laughs> Sarah Condon. <laughs> RJ, how are you doing on that note? How's Jamie, RJ? That's what we want to know. <laughs> Jamie's good. Yeah, she's good. We're, we're, we're good. Today's a good day for her. It's a day when pretty much she's alone in the house. And so she enjoys uh, enjoys that, you know, getting the, getting the alone time, which she does not get much of these days, but more than she used to. So we're all pretty good. I'm ready for it not, I'm really now ready for it not to be a sauna in Houston anymore. It's getting a little ridiculous. So if the humidity could go away, that'd make me happy. Yeah. Well, that's actually a great lead into our first topic today. <laughs> About the this weather. Is, this is not. This is not a good opening. Banter, 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 banter. I thought it was. I thought it was okay. I thought we were. You know. Okay. We we're doing right, okay. Let's keep going. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. So, do you guys have any hobbies? I mean, when was the last time you used that word about something? Do you have hobbies? Gosh, I. That's rough. I mean, I. It's been a long time since I've had something I could call a hobby. I tried to learn to knit. Because that seems to not be going out of fashion. And um, I, of course, of course, joined a church lady knitting group where I was like the youngest person by 40 years. And they taught, they were wonderful and welcoming and they taught me stuff. But then I went home and I, I couldn't replicate any of it and eventually gave up. I used to collect <laughs> stamps, but I don't do that anymore. What about you, RJ? Not really. I, you, yeah, I used to. I really like to play tennis. But I haven't oh. had much time to do that recently. I'm kind of actually thinking about getting back into that, like finding a local place that maybe I can get like a regular match going or something because I just haven't gotten any any exercise in like mm, five years or something <laughs> like that. So that would probably be good on a lot of levels. Um, I do like cars. I think we've talked about that mm -hmm. before. So my wife is like, is this a hobby or does it just make you totally miserable all the time? I was like, well, it's a little bit of both. It's um, like, it's it's like liking sports. Yeah, it's something I'm exactly. So it's something I like to do, but not, I'm not necessarily good at. So, uh, so yeah, I've got some hobbies. I'm trying to cultivate hobbies, but let's be honest, it's tough to have hobbies when you have small children. So I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have such small children anymore. And there's a little bit more breathing room yeah. in my life for things that I like to do and hoping that I don't forget what those are between now and then. I mean, I, I had this converse, very conversation with someone recently. I said, you know, what is it that you like to do in your free time? And she just totally froze. And this wasn't a person with children because that, that you have an automatic out when you have kids, I think. But there was no, um, no answer. I mean, working out was sort of the hobby, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and that maybe that is a hobby for people. But the, the, the reason we, I ask is because there was this unbelievable article in the New York mm -hmm. Times uh, this past week written by Tim Wu. And CJ has written about it for uh, the website, and it'll be up by the time this cast goes out, called In Praise of Mediocrity. And it begins by him saying, I'm a little surprised by how many people tell me they have no hobbies. It may seem like a small thing, but at the risk of standing grandiose, I see it as a sign of a, of a civilization in decline. Here in the wealthiest country in history, we seem to have forgotten the importance of doing things solely because we enjoy them. Yes, I know. We are all so very busy. Between work and family and social obligations, where are we supposed to find the time? But there's a deeper reason that so many people don't have hobbies. We're afraid of being bad at them. 
or we are intimidated by the expectation that we must actually be skilled at what we do in our free time. Our hobbies, if that's even the word for them anymore, have become too serious, too demanding, too much uh, an occasion to become anxious about whether you are really the person you claim to be. And he sort of goes on to talk about, you know, you can't just be a person who jogs, you have to be training for a marathon. Uh, you know, you can't just be... Uh, doing photography, you have to have a show coming up. It's, um, it's, it, he, he talks about how all these hobbies have kind of taken on a much more serious, we almost call them like gigs or side hustles now. Um, and then he finishes, he says, in a way that we rarely appreciate, the demands of excellence are at war with what we call freedom. For to permit yourself to do only that which you are good at is to be trapped in a cage whose bars are not steel, but self-judgment. Most of us will be truly excellent only at whatever we started doing in our teens. What if you decide in your 40s that you want to learn to surf? What if you decide in your 60s that you want to learn to speak Italian? The expectation of excellence can be stultifying. Now, for the, our, you know, colloquially, this is what, or in our parlance, we would call this um, hobbies have just, leisure time has become co-opted by the law and performancism. And um, you, you, it's not enough to just um, do something because you enjoy it. It has to have a measurable outcome. You must be improving at it. The chart of what you're, how much you're producing needs to be going up, 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 up. And I mean, I resonate deeply with this as a person who has got too many hobbies. Do you, do you think this is an accurate diagnosis? Do you think one of the reasons people don't have hobbies is because they're trying to excel or we've lost the ability to just enjoy things? I mean, I do. I think I th thought this made a wonderful point. Um, it's funny when you have kids, kids are not, um, they're not as fixated on being good at things. They just want to try things that are interesting to them. And so our son this past year just randomly was like, I really, well, it wasn't random. He saw some kid fencing on television and he was like, I, I really want to do that. And I was like, I, I mean, are you going to be good at that? Like it's a sword. And like, are you sure about that? Like I asked a lot. He's like, I really, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And so it's thrust us into this like bizarro world. I mean, just because like I'm from Mississippi, like fencing is not an effective way to kill a chicken for dinner. You know what I mean? And so it's just not something that I ever saw. It's, it's, not? Like, <laughs> it's not, you just break the chicken's neck with your hands. You don't need a long sword. Um, but it's been really beautiful to watch him like enjoy this. And, and also I think there's, I don't know. I, 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 I guess I, I, sh I wish I had enough time on my hands that I could read this for myself, but I do read this and f have certain pangs of guilt as a parent, because when we sign our kids up for these things that are hobbies, there is often this nagging voice of the devil that's like is my kid going to be the best in the fencing class you know what i mean like that's always there i mean we had a conversation recently about our daughter and we were like you know i mean should we even sign her up for soccer is she as coordinated as her brother and then my husband's like she's four why are we talking like you know i mean it's, so i mean i read this i totally agree with it but i think i think it's tentacles perhaps stretch even farther than just like adults not having hobbies like we've begun to evaluate if children's hobbies are you know if they're good enough to deserve them or if they're going to be resume boosters later on right. something you can you know this will get you into college yes. but wait, they're six years old why why are we I talking know. about that now it's crazy well, having not a six-year-old, but a 16-year-old, uh, that's exactly where my mind went was to college admissions because, you know, as Jackson is thinking about all this stuff, it's not enough to take the AP and the honors classes and get good grades in them. You also have to be part of clubs and it's not just enough to be part of a club. You have to be the leader of a club. And so everything that might be fun or a hobby becomes co-opted to how will this look on your college resume? And it's just totally stifling and crushing and no fun at all. And the money line in this article for me was, um, in a way that we rarely appreciate the demands of excellence are at war with what we call freedom. Mm. And I just thought that was so true. And I feel like he has so little freedom in his, uh, life. Um, you know, because everything, uh, yeah, is about your resume and, and, uh, you know, it's not good enough to 
have good grades, you also have to show a demonstrated interest in a particular field or something. And I'm just sitting here protesting, like my poor kid barely has time to sleep or enjoy uh, enjoy his life, uh, much less sort of you know, do very well in classes, but also enjoy doing very well in classes and find something he's very passionate about on top of the hours and hours of homework he has. So mm. um, ho- here's hoping that that's not the way college is. Although I will say he's headed to Austin City Limits this weekend with a friend, which is a welcome respite. So he's going to have a great time there uh, from, yeah, over this weekend. So I'm, I'm so thankful for that and for this friend that invites him every year to go along with him. I mean, do you remember there used to be hobby stores? Like, the, the, there's one Excuse in me, they still have still. Hobby Lobby, so. <laughs> Not Hobby Lobby. Uh, that's like my, pur- my, home my purgatory. <laughs> my, my purgatory is a Hobby Lobby. I oh was uh, thinking more of like places that sell like, you know, miniature trains and, right. um, and uh, you know, board puzzles and things like that. But um, Warhammer sets. You know, I, I completely uh, resonate with what you guys are talking about because we're always saying, like, we just want to find something that they that they enjoy and that they're good at. But what we really mean is we want to find something that they're good at because because <laughs> they they will enjoy it. And so we, we think they'll only enjoy things if they're really good at them. And yet, you know, um, there's plenty of things people do that they're not particularly good at, but that they d- deeply, deeply enjoy. I mean, I, I that kind of made me think, gosh, I would like to learn how to surf. Um, but... Um, has that has that boat passed? Has that ship's uh, sailed? <laughs> Is it too late? Have you guys seen the uh, this movie? I think it's out on Netflix. We just randomly watched it. The Surrounding Game. It's about an ancient Chinese game now more popular in Japan called Go. It's, oh yeah, Go. Yeah, and I'd never heard of Go, but it was fascinating to watch these young men who have who are very very into the game. And they were taught, so they're they're sort of building a, a Go association in America, and so they have to find a champion. And it's taken this game that's so much about beauty and slowness, and become just charged with who can be the best at it. And at one point, one of the young men in the documentary is like, basically, he's just like, I'm over all this beauty shit. Like he says that he's like, I'm just in it to win it. And um, he's the saddest person in this documentary i mean really and truly is like he's just missed the whole point sounds, and I, that sounds like the plot to the movie dodgeball oh haven't <laughs> right? seen it you haven't Only seen dodgeball? documentaries a true no. underdog story <laughs> a true underdog story no maybe our hobby is just another way for is it how grown-ups uh, is it a euphemism for play for grown-ups i mean that's kind of what the article is suggesting that uh something that has no utility outside of our enjoyment of it mm-hmm. is is our hobby and i think that um i do like the the notion that freedom is he keeps talking about the privileged, the wealthy, who should be having hobbies are the ones that seem to have no time for hobbies. And isn't that a cruel irony of like the, you know, the, the world in which we live right now. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of the world in which we live. And uh, Sarah, I'm going to let you uh, lead us into the next topic. Um, I was uh, scrolling through Instagram, as I know you both do the same practice every morning at 6 I'm doing that right now. And and I follow Elizabeth Gilbert on Instagram, Elizabeth who wrote uh, Eat, Pray, Love, um, which is not a book I liked, but the movie was kind of fun. Um, but she's always got big opinions about things and she had a big opinion on Monday morning. And to be honest with you, after the news cycle last week, I was not looking forward to waking up on Monday. I would have been like just fine with Jesus calling me home in the middle of the night. Um, and so I thought, gosh, what is she sort of processing? So the first thing I, I don't think I should read all of it, but oh, I'm just read what hit your, a your, your of highlights. Yeah. And what can we for people that aren't listening this week? Uh, what what is what was the news cycle last week? Well, last week was the Kavanaugh hearing, and um, it's where uh, Dr. Ford gave her testimony, and then Kavanaugh gave his testimony, and um, and I and the world been, exploded. Yeah, I've just been pretty aggressive towards men ever since then. Um, and so anyway. <laughs> The guys are not laughing. Um, It's fine. Neither is my husband. So Elizabeth Gilbert, she gives this like rundown. And there's a couple things that really stuck out to me. The first one, and I don't mean to hit any political buttons here, but this has been in my brain. 
Um, did I give Bill Clinton a complete and total pass on being a lying skank about women because he was my guy and I liked his politics? Answer, yes. So can I really not believe it when others do the same for the politicians and candidates they like? I have to say I'm a little bit haunted by Monica Lewinsky right now. Like, I so clearly remember that, and I was raised by Democrats, and I so clearly remember how much they love Bill Clinton, and I am haunted by that right now. I mean, because it really does. Well, first of all, it 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 names how women just become like a like a cost in these exchanges, and uh, and also it's just pure tribalism. Um, so I mean, we're all basically. I mean, this is dark, right? But we're in our caves. Like some people are in one cave. Some other people are in another cave. And we're just like tossing out whatever woman's going to be sacrificed. Like that's what it feels like. So um, anyway, take comfort there. Last week was a light week on the podcast. This week's going to be a little heavy, people. <laughs> take comfort there. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, so she goes into more detail. Basically, it's this sort of really intense specific questioning like what if this had been you know her people what if this had been the democrats what if we're what if this uh had played itself out wouldn't she be feeling the same sort of defensiveness and have the same kind of anger as the other side has right now uh which is which i is just completely for her to be that honest in this forum is really fascinating. If you go and you look at the link, I mean, she suffers for her honesty because immediately people are like, yes, but we always have to have a voice. Like, you know, it's like and people cannot correct her soon enough. Um, the thing she says, though, at the end that I wanted to read that I thought was so amazing was... Um, you know, and she definitely posits herself as these two things. So she says, can I be an activist and advocate, but still do the hard work of identifying my own blind spots, my own shortcomings, my own hate and my own failures of grace? I sure hope so, because I'm the only person I'm in charge of. This felt like a relief to me. I mean, just to have another woman say this. I mean, you know, Friday night, uh, my husband was like, I like I'm going to get a movie like we're going to pour you a drink. Like, let's just relax. So he got well-meaning. Uh, he got Oceans 8, which is like the Ocean series. But this is the one with all the women. Because <laughs> I think he felt like this would be empowering. You know what I mean? It's like all these women, like, you know, Mindy Collings on there. You love her, you know. And then, like, we're watching it, and it's the fascinating thing is it's about women, like, being really sinful. And, like, it's, and one of them specifically, I mean, they're bank robbers. They're, like, horrible people. And one of them is, like, Sandra Bullock's character, like, literally frames a guy. Like, and so, like, halfway through the movie, Josh looks over at me and he's like, sorry. But it was a, <laughs> there's this element of, of, um, I don't know. It's always that thing we fight up against with this news is like we I want to be on the side of the solely righteous, mm. but I'm not actually going to fit there. You know what I mean? Because because in order to be on the side of the solely righteous, you have to be willing to hang on the cross for the sins of the world. And I'm way too selfish for that. Mm. So anyway, it was a good reminder. That is so funny that he got that movie. I'm sorry. I just I, know, I have to. I I, so... I, th what what you just said is extremely powerful. But the Ocean's Eight <laughs> thing. Totally... That story reminds me better, of sorry. the time that we invited like these brand new friends. <laughs> We'd made a church this really sweet couple over to our house, and we're like, "Oh, we rented this movie. It's supposed to be really good. It's called Election." And about ten minutes in, we're like, "This was a bad choice." <laughs> but um, and no one is who's listening to this should ever watch that movie under any circumstances. Hey, but a, we're still friends. It's a great movie, movie. but it's yeah. it's uh, it's not something you want to show you know, watch with your church friends. No, no, although no, they're no. still friends, and we had a good laugh over it. It was it was pretty pretty funny. I'll just speak personally for a sec. Last week, I got home on Thursday, which is kind of the end of my week anyway, so I'm always a little bit fried. You know, Friday's my day off. And I was just really irritable and not very nice to my wife. And she was so sweet to me. And she finally, I was sitting on the couch and she said, RJ, I feel like, you know, because we talked a little bit about what was going on over the course of last Thursday when all this testimony was taking place. And she said, RJ, I feel like this is all reminding you a little bit of your some of your bad experiences in high school. And I said, oh my gosh, Jamie, like you are 100% correct. 
because I went to three different high schools. The first one was, and I'll just name it, like it was an elite boarding school in New Hampshire. Um, and the first day I was there, uh, an upperclassman invited me to come see a chair that he was selling or something. And it was, and I, and I, it was a total piece of junk, but he, he was much bigger than me and he put me in a headlock and I was like, no, no, noob, no, first, you're going to buy this chair. You're going to buy this chair. And I finally wrestled my way out of it. And, um, and so that was my first experience. And then I sort of got the, the reputation for being a cocky noob um, someone who was willing to sort of stand up for myself and speak back to my upperclassmen, um, which was not good. And then um, all the freshmen were woken up one night during the fall semester and made to drink water until we threw up. And then my room was trashed and then um, things were stolen. And when we brought the, this to the attention of the administration um, and my even my dorm parent or whatever, like a faculty member who was overseeing my dorm, the basic attitude was boys will be boys. Um, and I didn't last there very long because I just, I hated it. So then I came home and went to the public high school in my town, which we were living in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut then, which was still pretty homogenous, but a little bit more diverse. There's more emphasis on the arts, honestly, than on kind of jock culture. Um, and that fit well with me because I was a singer, you know, and that's what I did. And I loved it there. And I felt respected for what I did. And I played tennis and I did all that. But I felt like I could be who I was. Um, and that was enough. And then we moved and we moved back to this town that I'd lived in previously, this very waspy um, Fairfield County, Connecticut town, which uh, was sort of more of the same of that previous culture from that elite boarding school. Very jockey, a lot of drinking. Um, and I hated it. I just hated it, which is why I went to school in California. And I think just, I, I'm not making any judgment on who's telling the truth, what happened. Like I have my opinions, but I'm not going to share those here. But just the, all the coverage, I think brought back those feelings of seeing these people who were seeing this culture that was having and these guys seemingly getting away with anything they wanted to and not really caring about the impact they were having on anyone else and um, just feeling really left out and wounded and hurt. So um, I don't know. My hurt definitely comes out of a little bit of a place of self-righteousness, you know, being the good Christian kid who didn't drink, but also just some pain and some anger and some feeling of like, you know, that the 16-year-old kid in me hoping that there'll be that there would be some price to pay for those for those people who acted badly and who treated me badly. Um, so I don't know where the gospel is in that. You know, I, I know Sarah, when you said uh, we all want to be on the side was on be on the side of the unconditionally righteous. Is that what you yeah, said? The solely right, righteous? Yeah, solely righteous. And I guess when you said that, like my thought was of course, the gospel is that the solely righteous is already on our side, mm. right? No matter what, and we don't have to do anything. And I wish I had a heart that was a little more forgiving and less self-righteous. But, you know, the kid in me is still, um, still hurts. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's where I am with all that. And again, I don't know what the truth of the situation is, but that's definitely what where I was last week. And I was so thankful for my wife to be able to see it. I was like, damn, honey, <laughs> you are insightful. Wow. Thank you. And No, thanks for sharing um, that, RJ. That's, that, yeah. Is that too much? That, I don't think that's too much. No, no, I think that takes some guts. I, um, I, I do think uh, Elizabeth Brunig wrote in the Washington Post, she wrote an article saying like, we were all back in high school and like that this mm -hmm. did transport people. I mean, it's a little surreal mm -hmm. that we're talking about high school. Um, but high school, those wounds stays with you. Th those scars stay with you. And a lot of people stay in high school, I think, mm -hmm. um, as they get older, their, their sort of emotional development stops there. And I don't know, again, none of us have any clue. I mean, I get a little worried with the sort of guilt until proven innocent stuff, but it, it, it doesn't matter, but in the sense that it, if you've had that kind of experience in high school or or even worse, if you've had anything remotely like what Dr. Ford described, I think it's going to bring it out. It's going to touch on it. It's going to trigger is yeah. the contemporary word. And so yeah. everyone's emotional life is being, um, you know, appealed to here in a way that we are um, – it kind of peels back the the, the veneer of, of yeah. life and, and says, you know, we actually are a lot of us still children and still in us. I mean, children in a good way, but also a negative way. And we're still living there 
Um, my wife went to the same high school as Dr. Blasey Ford, and she dated two guys seriously from Georgetown Prep. And so she feels like her entire adolescence is on trial. And that's very difficult, not only for the, what it brings up for her, but also one of the things she's repeated to me is that, you know, the alcohol culture is something that she's sort of excited to see people finally suffer consequences for. And I wonder personally, the sexual assault question is the more important question, but one of the things that I don't think is being talked about is the alcohol abuse question. And I, at living here in Charlottesville and watching my students who I love dearly, but the, their relationship with alcohol is so dysfunctional and so screwed up that, and no one can talk about it um, because it's deeply, deeply ingrained on all sides of the culture. It's just go, you go from one of drinking event to the next drinking event. And I'm by no means a teacher totaler, but I think that if you took alcohol out of the equation, I just wonder what the statistics on all this stuff would be. And that's, um, and I know that when Kate talks about that, when she thinks of high school and she thinks about Georgetown prep, she thinks of serious amounts of alcohol. And that's, I don't know, she, she just wasn't naming names, but the relationship with alcohol is unbelievably unhealthy. And, and not just that, it's, there's a lot of sin there. There's a lot of anesthetizing. There's a lot of self-medication because of people are so anxious. There's so much going on. I tried to give up my a high school graduation speech about alcohol, which is probably not the time, but I was told in no uncertain terms by the administration of my high school that like, absolutely not. You will not talk about this. It, like you can't talk about that. I was, it's, it was deeply disturbing. And, and that's what I think people don't understand about Northeastern drinking culture in high school. Like it is intense. It's crazy. When we lived in Europe, uh, at this, at this, when I was in high school, it, people drank, but nowhere near what they do here. There wasn't the intention of getting plastered, like, you know, blotto. I think that that's the, one of the conversations that is being avoided because everyone is self-medicating themselves with alcohol and wine and beer. And who wants to have that conversation? You sound like the ultimate killjoy when you're saying, hey, maybe we should all stop drinking so much. Yeah. Maybe it was illegal to drink when you were 16 in high school. Maybe that was like, that was not legal for you to do. <laughs> you know, it was against the law. I think it's a, a big deal. And so I, uh, weirdly, yeah. just say this, last week, I actually got an apology email from a boy from high school. Like, Wow. Yeah. Um, I was, he did not assault me. He was, um, he's such a sweet guy. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, we made out a lot and he never asked me out on a date and which is a hard thing for a teenage girl. And, um, he, um, when I was in a class with my very best friend, he found a way and I desperately wanted him to ask me to homecoming. He found a way to ask to, to get the intercom, he was, you know, wily and talked to the secretary at the school into it to found a way to get her to let him use the intercom to ask. He actually asked my friend out to homecoming in the same class. And um, it's probably the most painful thing that happened to me in high school, which I'm so lucky. Right. I mean, of all the horrible things that happen to people in high school. But it was very um, it was so sweet and really unnecessary and generous that like last week I got this random note from him that he's like, I feel like I wasn't kind to you in high school and I should have been. Um, wow. so it's interesting. I mean, I think Dave, what you're saying is this is, this has brought a lot of really hard stuff up for people, mm -hmm. but if it's, if it's also brought up some apology, that's, that's an, that, you know, and some remorse, that's a, that's also a very powerful thing. Um, yeah, it's, it certainly has for me. I mean, I remember things about if anyone combed through I mean, it almost goes without saying, if anyone combed through my high school yearbook or, or you know, what's it going to be like for our kids who everything has been captured on phones and text and it's all electronic? Right. If uh, I wouldn't, none of who would stand up to scrutiny of that? that and that's that not was... a defense of the person of, of Judge Kavanaugh. It's just to say that for me sitting, I was sitting there like, well, wait a second, I, uh, I, I sure hope this isn't the standard of, of, of anything. And that it kind of brought this humility and this pain. And I was like, do I need to call up so-and-so, you know, do I need right. to, um, I certainly have put this out of my mind in a way that I'm not sure is particularly great at the same time. What about washed white as snow? I mean, how do I fit this in right. with, with my, right, you, right, you, right. you wrote a beautiful piece about it, but RJ, what, what were you about to say? Well, I was just going to say that that was exactly my thought. Like we're, we're going to, as a culture, we're going to reach a breaking point 
pretty soon here because everything you've ever done is going to be recorded forever. And it's not going to be the way it was where you can just say, oh, it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, and, and I think what I was struck by last week was how there's just n- no room in our culture for humility or doubt or, or you know, um, that it, it's, it's a zero sum. It's all or nothing, you yeah. know, either like I'm, I'm, you're totally guilty or you're totally not guilty. And there's and nothing in between. That's never there's, true. There, almost. There, there's almost. never true. And there's no freedom to say, you know, like, I, again, I don't know what happened, but, um, but there's no freedom to say, you know, what, what I hope I would have said if I'd been him was, Hey, I don't remember this. And I'm, like, I really feel like it didn't happen, but maybe, but gosh, maybe it did. Maybe it did. Like, you know, um, and if it did, I'm so, so sorry. And I'll do anything I can to make amends because I know that I'm not a perfect person and I've made mistakes. Um, there's no room. You now, could, you, no there's no, there's no way you could ever do that. Like game over. But, but to me, that just sounds like humanity. It, it sounds like, like that's a person I could actually trust right. with something. Uh, and, and it just, it, I don't know. Like I said, there has to be a breaking point at, at some point because everything is going to be out there. And, and at some, it has to be untenable at some point to say, I've always been perfect and never has happened. Nothing's ever happened and I've never made any mistakes And because it's just going to be so demonstrably untrue. I mean, we've seen this happen with artists. Like, you know, once we find out sort of the biography of artists, like who, Dave, somebody wrote a wonderful piece for the website about this. Like, who, you know, who? how can you, gosh, who was it? But I think it was a woman. She wrote a great piece for us about. John John um, Mayer, I think. Yes, yeah. about how, like she, like she, you know, are, there are all these people that we can't love. I mean, um, the, the Nanette comedy special that the comedian I can't remember her name because I can only remember Nanette that she does she talks about Picasso in the same way that like we're not like she hates Picasso now because you know he um was in a relationship with molested I'm not sure how it went down but with a young woman I mean I hope we're at a breaking point RJ I mean honestly I hope we are because eventually everyone will be cast down. I mean, it, I mean, that's just, that's how this is going to work. The Babylon B, I think had, had, uh, had a headline today that said FBI investigation finds whole world guilty. There is no one righteous, not one. And it was like, you know, <laughs> right. I think that the, as you say in your piece, that's a, there still may have, may have been. And in many cases, there is a very clear perpetrator and mm-hmm. victim. And I don't think, mm-hmm. um, and I, that's one of the things I loved about what you wrote. And, um, I also, one of the things that has run through my mind is like, as a person who thinks about things in terms of law and gospel is that you have someone kind of, uh, appealing to the law for mercy or, or, or some mm. space we talk about why, you know, it's so long ago, why should it matter? Or, you know, what does this have to do with this thing? It's like, well, if we're take the, the law is not there to make exceptions. I mean, that's the gospel. That's where you go afterwards when you've admitted. But the judge talking in a court of law and this sort of Sermon on the Mount type of every you are judged guilty kind of thing and justifying yourself completely. I just thought to myself, so much in me says, give everyone a second chance. You know, that's the Christian in me talking. But if you're appealing to the law and you're trying to get on, you know, the Supreme Court is the law, why should we look to the law for mercy? That's not the function of the law. Not to say that no one shall be justified. Maybe that's interpreting the law. Maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's projecting a theological thing on something horizontal. I don't know. That's just what I was wondering. I was like, well, the gospel is what happens once the law has done the convicting, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and I do want to say just before we get off this topic that for the first time last night, praise God, I actually had a meaningful interaction with a friend who is on the other side of this issue. Um, you know, cause I do get so tired of being in an echo chamber. Um, and, and that was actually helpful. Um, and, and, and this person is also a Christian and I think we share a lot of, um, theological convictions, but we just see this thing differently. Um, and so I want to say, I think there's, you know, I think I, you know, I hope there's room for thinking people on both sides of this. And then what you, what the three of us are talking about is more um, helpful for our listeners in their everyday life rather than people who sort of want to um, head into battle, you know, guns blazing. 
I agree with you. I just, I, I always want to sort of say when we're talking about stuff like this, like the amount of people, of the amount of women that this has sent over the edge, the amount of women. I mean, I know a woman who I've known my whole life who is 60 years old and suddenly, you know, she's talking about the fact that she was molested as a child and she yeah. was sexually assaulted in Absolutely. college. I mean, I, try, I I texted you guys. I tried, I tried to think of all <sighs> the friends I had who um, have been sexually assaulted. And I had to stop when I realized I'd left off the one friend who was raped by her boss. Like, I'm just like, I had to stop at that point, you know, like, it's just, it's, it's so it, it is very difficult. It is a very difficult thing because um, it's, it's difficult that this is the way we're having this conversation because yes. this is such a valuable conversation and these women yes. need to be heard and these women need to feel like they can talk and, you know, they need fathers need to feel like they can have these conversations with their daughters, which is happening. I mean, two of the emails I got in response to the piece I wrote, Dave, were from dads like who were yeah. like, I'm going to have a conversation with my college girls now and ask them if this is happening. Like, it's just so unfortunate that this is the way we're having this conversation because... I I want to I almost want to draw a line between the two because we need we need these women to be able to process what's happened to them and to call people out without us politicizing it. But nothing so. happens in our culture like that. I know. Unfortunately, yeah, I know. everything is is. Uh, Everyone should read Ann Lowry's piece that went up on the site because it handles so beautifully. Um, I think what's happening and what's dividing us right now. And um, it also is just, if you have women in your life who have been assaulted, who are just now talking about these things and you don't know what to say, she actually gives some really sage advice as to how to navigate that. So um, I actually read it and I thought this is a must read in seminaries. Mm. Like this is, this is actually how pastoral care should work. Mm. Um, so yeah, read it. It's beautiful. It really is. I'm so proud of it. It's on the site. Well, let's go from something that heavy, which we have, um, you know, by no means exhausted. And I do point people to not only to what Sarah wrote, but to Gilbert's, I think, in, what is it? She calls it integrity check mm-hmm. and uh, or a rage. She talks about a lot of people. Um, a friend of mine was talking about the other day about mainlining the news like it was a just acknowledging how much it's uh, how much of a how much we like being angry or how much it feels there's a high, there's an intoxication to that kind of outrage. Oh, it feels so good. And I think so, it, Alan I really, Jacobs, I, yeah, you know, Alan Jacobs, I really think it, it allows people to feel like they matter and that they're important. And also it just, we don't acknowledge that it feels good. Um, yeah. And that's, can I say one more thing? Just one more thing. Of course. About justice. About justice, because I'm not. Ooh, I'm not a big. I'm, I'm here for that. Yes, please talk about. It. I'm doing a Bible study on justice tonight. Tell me what you think about justice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big justice guy. Um, I don't think, although my earlier soliloquy may betray that uh, assertion. Uh, but I've been listening to the latest season of Serial. Have you guys been listening? Season three, where they're 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 they basically taken up residence in a courthouse in Cleveland, Ohio, and they're looking at like the entire criminal justice system through the lens of this one municipal courthouse. Um, but they there's a man uh, that they interview who was, you know, beaten by the police. Okay, and uh, it seems like it was. I don't know. It seems like it's unjustified. I'm not going to take a huge standpoint on that. But his lawyer was talking and saying, you know, from his, from this man's point of view, um, he can try to let it go what happened to him, but, but it's going to eat away at him. It's going to affect him. He's going to be walking around. People are going to know about it. His family is going to know about it. Um, he's going to bear the wounds of this. And just that, um, the need for justice in our personal lives, it's not, um, for people who've been wronged is not, and again, I'm not saying whether or not he was wrong, but for those who are wronged, who feel themselves to be wrong, it's not an abstract concept that it does actually affect your life and can affect your family, can affect your community. And so I don't know, you know, I'm thinking about the piece that you wrote, Sarah, about how the need for justice, uh, has to come back to the cross. Um, and I think I said this a few months back, how, you know, one way to imagine the cross is as if, you know, God taking responsibility for the brokenness of the world in his own flesh and the flesh of his son. Um, 
But I need to think more about that because Fleming Rutledge talks a lot about justice in our crucifixion mm-hmm. book. And those are the parts that sort of make me squirm a little bit because I I sort of want to be like, the cross is the end. It's over. Forgive. Mm-hmm. Like, let it go, man. Let mm-hmm. it go. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if that's possible or that there has to be some promise that justice will be served someday. But that's definitely a growing edge for me. In, ther- in terms of thinking about this message that we proclaim, because I want to tell people to forgive and I want to be a forgiving person and I want to tell people who've been wronged to find their respite in the arms of a loving God. But that might just not be enough for people who've been really badly wounded. That's the end of my second soliloquy. No, that's, that's beautiful. I think the injunction to forgive is wonderful, but it's still the law. I mean, it's still, um, yeah. we proclaim that God can and has, uh, uh, the forgiveness comes from the, we are not Jesus. You know, I think that, no. um, that makes sometimes when we talk about it, it, it does come across as what's wrong with you. You just have to show grace to this person who's done this awful thing to you. Yeah. And, you know, as Sarah, you put in your piece, it's like, you know, that might just not be possible. We might just have to leave that one in God's hands and, and kind of, uh, say that, I can't, you can sort of thing. I, I don't know. But I do do want to get to uh, a slightly more Pets. uplifting <laughs> note here at the end. Our culture's down the tubes. Everyone hates each other. Men hate women. <laughs> women hate men. It's all going, you know, oh, we need each other. Let's all give each other a hug. Um, this is about actually that very thing, uh, and it's called Nursing Juliet. It was written by Danielle Offrey, uh, who's a great writer uh, in the New York Times. And she talks about the, the dog that she and her family had uh, named Juliet. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about this as someone whose family never had pets because of allergies. Um, but I've seen that what purpose a pet can serve and what role they can play. And this is how she puts it. She says, a dog is a two-way highway for love, unbounded and unadulterated. In a world that relentlessly enforces limits, the love of a pet is a refuge for unconstrained emotion, especially for a child. This became uh, even more apparent as our dog Juliet aged. Uh, While adolescents tend to be blithely self-centered in all manner of human interaction, when it came to Juliet, my three adolescents were solicitous, tender, and concerned. They treated her as a treasured child whose every fault could be forgiven and whose every personality quirk was lauded like a work of Mozart, retold with pride of parentage. He talks about Juliet uh, sort of growing older and and really declining and getting ready to be put down. She writes, as a physician, I've always treasured the intimacy of the doctor-patient relationship, the emotional bond that's created within the harrowing vulnerability of illness. But there is something about the physical intimacy of nursing that is particularly acute. It intensified with her and Juliet. It intensified our connection in a manner that felt almost primal. In the exam room, we gathered around Juliet, performing a protective huddle. I'd maintained my doctorly composure throughout the morning, but watching my children bid Juliet farewell opened the floodgates for me. They'd never known life before Juliet. Julia had been waiting for them when they arrived, and they hadn't counted on the world actually existing without her. There couldn't be a snowy day without Juliet snuffling through the unplowed drifts. There couldn't be any of life's pains without Juliet's downy neck to cry into. As a parent, your instinct is to protect your children from anguish. But at this moment, there was only the raw pain that is inextricably linked to love. It was an unvarnished introduction to life and the existential risks we take when we choose to love another human being. We wish, of course, that Juliet could have lived forever. But we have to make do with the gifts she left us. The most powerful is what Juliet gave to our children, the opportunity to tender and to weather unconditional love. Love as an outward, selfless reach. She allowed them to experience what parents experience. Love as the magnificent, harrowing plunge. I mean, I think what she's talking about is something that's a, a, a very close echo to the love of God. I mean, this is this... Uh, this when I see people who really love their pets, and again, I'm on the outside, I see a relationship of unconditional love 
like that no matter what uh isn't it it's david browder i think who makes the joke like uh if you lock your 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 wife and your dog in the trunk of your car in an hour only one of them is going to be excited to see you <laughs> and uh solid joke browder solid joke <laughs> and it's the dog because the dog love the wife car joke <laughs> <laughs> sure he'll be thrilled to be associated with that well, good week particular. for that one too, Dave. Oh, God. <laughs> delete delete he was talking about the difference between knowing and loving uh, uh-huh. Good. <laughs> Damn. Um, it, it's, we're you're big, welcome. We're a big dog family, uh, and and by I mean we've also had big dogs. We got uh, Bernie's Mountain Dog when we lived in New York uh, at the shelter. Her family her parents had gotten divorced, and so they gave her up, and um, we couldn't get pregnant. And uh, and they said, look, these dogs they only live till they're seven, and she was four, and I thought surely we'll have a baby by the time this dog dies. And, um, by the time Casey died, uh, we had moved to Texas and had two children. She was 12 when she died. Um, and then, and we were so, God, that dog had just, she'd been through so much and gotten us through so much and sort of the way the writer talks about the dog, um, being careful around the baby. Like I can remember that about her, but now we have Rosa, um, who we also adopted. She's four years old and, um, we adopted her for a different reason. It, it felt like, uh, our son had had a really rough year in school. Uh, he did have a rough year in school. It didn't feel like it. And, you know, we, we were trying to help, help him to feel better about himself. That was sort of what we wanted. Mm -hmm. And we thought if we get him this dog, there will be a tenderness between them and he will have something to take care of. Sorry. It's like hard to talk about it. And I don't even like dogs, like to be clear. Like we got the first one because my husband wanted something to take care of because we're going to have a baby. And we got this one from my son. But watching the way that they interact and the purpose that he finds in loving her um, is just remarkable to me. Like, I mean, even last night, like he um, had gotten in trouble and, and he's like, he's like in such a better place, but he got in trouble the way seven-year-old boys get in trouble. He wasn't listening about something. And, um, anyway, he went to bed upset with us and I walked past his door. Cause I always uh, sing to our daughter and then sing to our son before bed. And I walked past his door to come and sing to him. And I had heard him whistling earlier. I was like, what's he whistling at? And he had whistled Rosa up from downstairs and she was in the bed with him. And even though he'd called her, he looked up at me and he goes, Rosa wanted to come check on me. <laughs> like, that is not what happened. <laughs> so I don't know. I just, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an animal person, but like, um, there is something about like, she just serves such a purpose in our family that I didn't even know that we needed when we got her. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. I'm so sick of our dogs. <laughs> I just... <laughs> oh my gosh. We have a coworker who has like five rescue dogs and I'm yeah, like, do you want does. two more? And she's like, maybe if Houston didn't have a law limiting you to five. Oh my God. I'm so sick of them. Like they pee on our bath mats and they sneak upstairs to take a dump on the carpet and they escape out the backyard and I'm just so over it. So, so you're not experiencing think, unconditional love he, here. Each one of them sleeps with one of our sons, one of our big boys. So I think maybe the dog, the kids like the dogs, but, uh, but you I know, they like, have, we have a baby. We don't need a dog. We got a right, baby, right. you know, so, like, so Marshall is the object of their unconditional love, um, and protection, which I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. Cause, um, yeah, man. And they're, they're going to live a long time too. They're little dogs. <laughs> I just don't know what we're going to do. And we would not let them near Marshall cause we were pretty sure they would think he was a squirrel and like attack. Well, I guess or that's a reality check. Cause I've always felt, you know, I remember when my father was going through a rough time, he said, I'm really thinking seriously about getting a dog. And he's the reason why we never had a dog because he's so allergic, but he wanted a dog for one reason, because he said, I just want the, the love. 
Like that's what I want. Yeah. I don't I don't want to take care of a dog. I want something that loves me like that. And yeah. uh, you know, I was like, well, how does how does this make my mom feel? But um that's <laughs> gosh, Paul. Our dogs do love us like that, but like one of our dogs like he just always wants me to scratch his butt. And I'm like, I don't want to scratch. Like, like I'll try to scratch his head and he'll turn around and like sit on my hand. And I'm like, stop it. I don't want to scratch I'm your butt. I'm trying to make this serious. Like, and I, you keep on bringing up butts and dumps. So I have to say like yesterday, I'm sitting in my office and all I can hear is this like little boy squeal outside. And it's like being carried really quickly. And I go to open my office door and RJ has their son who is what is he two now right i'm two and he's like carrying him like a like a sack of potatoes i mean really it's the expression like the legs are hanging on one side and he's wailing and all i can hear is rj being like i don't have a diaper and i walked (laughs) out there and i was like wow this rj does lead an intense life you know what i mean just take it just taken a dump and he had no diapers (laughs) left in his backpack because his teachers had taken them out of the backpack so now I had to take him back to preschool, which is mm-hmm. not his idea of a good time. All right. Well, this is totally and- off the rails. I, I'm going to rein this in. And he and- wanted me to scratch his butt. Okay. You know? <laughs> Let me tell everybody out there that um, we before this before we record again, we're going to be in Oklahoma City, or at least I'll be in Oklahoma City with some wonderful people. And I just read Carrie Willard's talk that she's going to be giving, and I think it is, it is so good that I just... Um, Whoever you are out there that's listening and can go, you should go just to hear Carrie. Uh, I can also say that Stephen Paulson will always kind of um, drop bombs left, right, and center. JD's going to be great. And I just, I hope to, we hope to see you there. It's called Grace in an Age of Distraction. And um, RJ will not be there to distract you. So that's, that's uh, good news, I guess. Well, guys, until we meet again, I hope uh, you're you survive with your children and your dogs. Uh, Thank you. And Bye. I hope my dogs survive. All right. Bye. <laughs> Much love. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.